Welcome back to Series 2 of The Detective, and this, Episode 3, What If It's Not Murder? I am investigative reporter Mark Williams Thomas, and have spent all my working life focused on trying to help victims get justice. This involves investigating both current and historic crimes, as well as looking at potential miscarriages of justice. In this episode, we'll hear more from the police officer that led the investigation, explore in more detail the injuries that Sana had to her body, and take a closer look at the police evidence. Mindy is serving a life sentence for murder, having been convicted of killing the wife of her lover. Sana Ali was just 17 years old and 11 weeks pregnant when she died. So what was the result of the post-mortem examination and why did it change the police opinion from suicide to murder? The police officer that was in charge of the case, retired Detective Chief Superintendent Jane Antrobus, explains. We then get to the uh, pathology. I thought this is quite an interesting one. I can exclude the possibilities that injuries were inflicted by one or more assailants in an attempt to mimic self-inflicted injuries. Yes. I mean, my challenge to that would be, and it raises the question straight away, is, well, if you think they're self-mimicked, why can't they be suicide? Why would they have to have... If they look like suicide, how do you determine that they've been made to look like suicide, actually, and they aren't suicide? Because... They would, the injuries database that is held nationally, there's all the research into what injuries can be caused in what different ways, by whom, or one or more, or yourself, depending on what the knife is, where the, the serrations are on the knife, what hand you would hold it in, could it have been used in that way, could it have been used in that way, could it have been used anyway, so that they look at the whole picture and that is when they make the decision and they're not saying that, I mean, like you're saying, well, there could, there's some that could be self-inflicted, but what they're saying is there are some that someone could have done to themselves, but there are certainly some that have happened in the same attack, because they're not old ones, mm. that have happened in the same attack, cannot be done by that person, however they hold the knife. So there's got to be a third party, either one or more, as mentioned in this well, statement. I, two injuries, obviously, are the most significant ones. And this is this one that's identified as 24, which is referred to as the chest, and then the abdomen injury. Yes. Uh, there was no determination in terms of which one was first or which one was second, um, but those were the ones that created the biggest blood loss yes. and resulted in the fatality. Yes. So what of the three people arrested in connection with Sana's death? They were Sayer Ali, his brother Hassan and Mindy. Sayer and his brother were arrested as persons of interest um, in the initial stages over that weekend and Hassan was um, alibied out of it, as was Sayer, because he was at Friday prayers and numerous witnesses had seen him at Friday prayers at the relevant time period when the murder occurred. Um, however, Mindy didn't come into it until Sayer's phone, mobile phone was seized and analysed and she obviously knew that she would come up from the analysis of the mobile as a person who was texting him all the time, he was texting her back, there was a lot of telephone communication between the two. So she actually phoned through to the incident room on the Monday and said, I'm a friend of Sire Ali, you will be wanting to speak to me. Right. So we didn't find her, she presented herself. 
By Saturday, Sana's death, originally treated as a suicide, had become a murder investigation. On Monday the 14th of May, Mindy contacted the incident room at Greater Manchester Police to tell them about her visit to see Sana on the Friday. Officers drove down to see her that same afternoon. Mindy's mum, Suki, tells me about the moment the police arrived at her house to arrest her daughter for murder. Oh, God. It was... um. It was then afterwards, then when she put herself forward, they come. There was loads of them. And then they asked, have you got a knife? I said, yes, yeah. I said, help yourselves, look, you know, whatever you want to look at, have, have a look. And um, then the people came in the white suits, they went upstairs, they, they did things on her, the carpet and other stuff like that, and they were just looking around. I said, whatever you need, help yourselves. You know, my, my son was there, he was trying on his prom suit. And the officers were saying, oh, he's a smart young man, blah, blah, blah. And we didn't think nothing of it because we thought, oh, OK, she's going to be fine, you know. And then you take what they can take and she'll be home soon, you know, because all we knew is that she was telling the truth. It was whilst watching the news that Mindy's family heard that she was being charged. It was on the, the news in the evening and it said that Armahinda obviously has been charged with the... Obviously, whatever they say, the death of Sana Ali. Oh, it was just heartbreaking. It was just awful. What a shocking way to find out. It is a reminder of the impact that investigations have on the wider families of all parties connected to a murder and how, as investigators, I believe that we have a duty to remember this. After all, Mindy's family had done nothing wrong. So Mindy had been charged with the murder of Sana Ali. The police now needed to build a case against her. This involved obtaining evidence from witnesses, building a clear timeline and, where possible, provide an evidenced account or, in some aspect, a hypothesis of what happened. So what was the police theory which became the prosecution's case? David Wells is a practising criminal solicitor and partner in the firm Wells Berkham and will be helping to explain their case. The prosecution's case was that Mindy had gained entry to the house when Sana was alone and that she had taken with her a box of chocolates as a present. The prosecution also alleged that she took with her a knife, a knife that she used to stab Sana with and then subsequently left via the kitchen window. Sana was two months pregnant and even with this, Sayer still continued to see Mindy. The prosecution say that Mindy was obsessed with Sayer and wanted to continue with the relationship, even though Sana was pregnant. In addition, the prosecution said that on Friday the 11th of May 2007, Mindy attended the home address with the specific intention to kill Sana. It was accepted by both the prosecution and defence that Mindy was in the house between 1.30pm and 2.15pm, or shortly afterwards. The Crown's case was that Sayer left the home about 12.45pm with his brother to go to the mosque. As they left, they locked the front door from the outside with the key that they both kept. Sana did not have a key for the front door. The rear kitchen door was locked from the inside and the key was in the door. The prosecution said that by the early afternoon, Sana's mother, 
having called Sana's phone at various times and got no answer, got rather concerned. So her mum called Sayer, who called her sister Yasmin, asking to go and see Sana. Let's take a moment to think about that last point. Why was Sana's mum so concerned about her daughter when she had not heard from her for only a few hours? Let me explain further. At 2pm, Sana's mum, Marianne, tried to contact Sayer on his mobile. He was still at prayers, so did not answer. He did call her back at quarter past two and they agreed to contact his sister Yasmin and sister-in-law, Iram, to ask them to go around to the house to see if Sana was all right. Sayer then called the house phone at 16 minutes past two and again at 18 minutes past two. Neither calls were answered and a minute later, at 19 minutes past two, Sayer sent a text to Sana asking her to contact him without delay. This for me is a clear indication that the whole family were concerned for Sana's welfare and mental state. When Sana was found by Yasmin, the knife was beside her. The prosecution said that Mindy brought the knife with her. The knife is a vital piece of evidence, and if used by Mindy, it would have been fair to assume it had her DNA, fingerprints, or both on it. Yet it had neither. So what was the origin of the knife, and who did it belong to? The knife was a Tramontina, made in Brazil, but widely imported and available for many shops, either as a set or as a single knife. The knife was shown to all of Sayer's family and they all denied owning such a knife, although in her first statement, Zaya said that she could not say if the knife belonged to her mum or not. And crucially, when Sayer was shown a photograph of the knife on the 17th of May, so the day of the incident, he said, and I quote, it does look a bit familiar, but I can't be certain. At the trial, evidence was given by PC Wakeham, who attended the crime scene. She stated that whilst at the house, she spoke to one of Sayer's sisters, she cannot remember which one, who said, Sana called me at 1pm and said that she was not feeling well. And then the woman added, I told her I would come round. The sisters gave evidence at the trial and when asked about this, both sisters denied that that is what they had said. The officer said that the woman added that Sana told her that she had hurt herself before. This same officer spoke to Sayer in hospital and she asked him if Sana had ever tried to harm herself. He pointed with his right hand towards his left forearm and ran his finger from his wrist to his elbow. So evidence from the family clearly suggested that Sana had tried to self-harm or at least told people she had self-harmed. Forty-five minutes after arriving at Fairfield Hospital at 5.30pm, Sana is declared dead. After this, Sayer called Mindy. Sayer, having heard his wife was dead, called Mindy to tell her she was dead. They spoke a few times. It was accepted by the prosecution and defence that Sayer said to Mindy that he believed that Sana had stabbed herself. He also said, and I quote, I have killed my wife. What he meant by that, he later said, was that he blamed himself for her suicide. So even Sayer thought that his wife had killed herself. The A&E doctor said that the injuries looked like self-inflicted wounds, but there were too many, so must be murder. The pathologist came to the same conclusion. 
Dr. Lum undertook the examination. He's an experienced forensic pathologist and on the Home Office approved register. He described the attack as sustained rather than frenzied and that the attacker had struck a minimum of six blows with a knife. He stated there were a number of wounds to the wrist which were typical of self-inflicted injuries. These may have been inflicted at about the same time as the other injuries or may have been inflicted by an attacker to mimic self-inflicted injuries. Other injuries were consistent with Sana holding up her arms to protect herself from attack or from grappling with the knife. Rather bizarrely during cross-examination, Dr Lum agreed with the defence barrister that the pattern of injuries could have started with Sana inflicting injuries on herself and then somebody taking the knife off her and stabbing her. We will consider this in greater detail later. The prosecution suggested that the stab to the abdomen had been aimed at the unborn baby, given that Sana was two months pregnant. The abdomen wound neither penetrated nor touched the uterus. Of course, a very emotive statement to make, that Mindy deliberately plunged the knife into Sana's abdomen to kill the unborn baby. But let me pose a contra-theory. Sana had just found out that her husband has been having an affair for a long time and she is pregnant. She's angry and upset, still a child only 17 years old, and decides that she will stab herself. She does not want her cheating husband's baby. We will consider this in detail later, but for now, I pose the question, is it possible she stabbed herself in the abdomen? So what of the crime scene and blood distribution? The prosecution medical expert, Dr Davidson, deduced from the blood and fluids in the room that the assault was most likely to have started in the left corner of the bedroom, then moved towards the end of the bed, resulting in heavy blood stains on the bed and on the floor. When Sana received the knife wound to her abdomen, which was noted by Dr Lum to be injury number 43, she cannot have been covered by her dress. We can be sure of this because no cuts were found, to Sana's top. Furthermore, the lack of blood on Sana's trousers meant that she cannot have been upright, like you would expect in a defensive fighting mode, when the abdomen was stabbed or at any time thereafter. The leakage of abdominal fluid onto the carpet meant that there must have been a period of time when Sana was lying face downwards on the carpet, exposing her abdomen. However, After this, she must have either moved herself or been moved, given that she was found on her back by her sister-in-law and paramedics. Another blood pattern expert, Mr Woods, made further interesting observations. Across the wardrobe door, there was a single straight linear cast of blood spots, which indicated a single straight swinging action of Sana's arm. He stated that he would expect to see this if Sana was in a struggle, and defending herself with her arms. He noted that there being only one linear cast of blood spots suggested she moved away from that area given the amount of blood that she was losing. There was also smeared blood staining around the door handle suggesting that someone with bloody hands had touched it, although not possible to say who. I find this last aspect interesting. Is it possible that a totally different explanation exists to the murder narrative? We know that Sana had a bump on her forehead Is it possible that she was sat on the end of the bed, lifted up her own top, hence no cuts to it, stabbed herself in the abdomen and then fell immediately to the floor, bumping her head, thus 
causing the abdomen fluid to go onto the floor as a result of the fact that she had just stabbed herself. This would explain the direction of the flow of blood, that she was not in an upright position when the abdominal injury occurred. This theory is consistent with the medical evidence. Let's now consider the police theory that Sana did not stab herself, but Mindy did it, the murder she is convicted of. But if we do this, we run into what I would say is a major problem, because Sana would either have had to be compliant, not fighting, and therefore allowing Mindy to lift up her top, or Sana lifted it up for Mindy, allowing Mindy to stab her. So Dr Davidson's evidence is that Sana was for a period of time lying face down on the carpet before turning herself over, meaning therefore that she must have been alive to turn herself over, given that she was found upright and not face down on the floor. Yet Sana made no effort to crawl to the door, move around the room or leave the bedroom. Let me remind you of what Dr Lum, the forensic pathologist, said about movement. Furthermore, he also stated that death may not have been immediate and there could have been a period of time following the infliction of the fatal injuries to the chest and abdomen and Sana's collapse during which she would have been capable of purposeful movement. I would interpret purposeful movement as the ability to move around and in this case seek help, at the very least to try to get out of the bedroom. But Sana did nothing. She just lay on the floor. Why? And what are the timeline of movement after the injuries? Dr Annie McGuinness, who was a defence expert, stated that she would not expect someone with Sana's pattern of injuries to have signs of life for more than 90 minutes to two hours after being injured, with the minimum time put at about one hour. It was also her view that the abdomen injury was delivered with such ferocity that she does not believe Sana could have done it to herself. As an investigator, this immediately raises one question. So, what was the size and weight difference between Sana and Mindy? They're in fact both the same height, with Mindy weighing slightly less than Sana. So it begs the question, how could Sana not have the force and strength, but Mindy could? So what does the timeline tell us about when Mindy left and when Sana was found? We can be completely accurate with these, given phone records. We know that Mindy left the house at quarter past two and the first emergency call was made at seven minutes past four. When the paramedics arrived, they found Sana was systolic, no heartbeat, still warm, no rigor mortis had set in and there was no sign of hypostasis, settling of blood. The pathology expert, Dr Ackland, said that rigor mortis normally sets in within two hours after death and is visible in the face and hypostasis half to one hour after death. So it must be that Sana was still conscious and alive after Mindy left. After all, she'd been able to turn herself over. My conclusion from this is that the fatal two injuries were inflicted much closer in time to when Sana was found at around 4pm. If this is the case, and it is supported to a large degree by all the medical evidence, it could not have been Mindy who stabbed Sana, because we know that she left the house at around quarter past two and did not return at any stage. (music) 
Now let's consider the blood pattern analysis evidence from the prosecution expert, Dr. Davidson. Dr. Davidson found some of Sana's blood on the bedroom window frame and the handle. There was also blood on the back of the bedroom door, including smearing on and around the handle. Dr. Davidson said that the most likely explanation for the blood on the door handle was that somebody had operated it with a blood-stained hand or blood-stained hands. She thought that the killer, who the Crown say was Mindy, may have remained completely unbloodstained unless the killer moved Sana, which would explain the blood on the window and the door. But just take a few moments to think about that theory. It was only Sana's blood that was found on the window frame and around the door handle. So ask yourself the question, would Mindy, having killed Sana in a violent attack, gone and touched the window frame? Or was it Sana, bleeding, having cut herself, who touched the window handle to perhaps close it? Also, Sana's blood was on the door handle. Could she have touched it to perhaps get out of the room or shut the door? Remember forensic expert Mr Woods, who describes smearing of blood on the handle. Could this be Sana trying to pull herself up? Let's assume it was transfer blood from Mindy having killed Sana when she shut the window and opened the bedroom door to leave. If this was the case, then how come there is absolutely no blood outside of the bedroom? I believe it is very significant that no blood was transferred out of the room. Central to the defence's case was that no blood was found on 12 items of clothing taken from Mindy, which included the clothes she wore on the day nor was any found on her handbag, her mobile or in her car. So how could Mindy, having fought with Sana, moved her body, thus getting Sana's blood on her hands, which she then transferred onto the window and door handle, yet leave no trace outside of the bedroom, or on her clothes, hair or her phone or in the car? We will consider this shortly. But first, what do we know about the knife? The knife was a 30cm black-handled kitchen knife marked Taramontina, Brazil. It had three silver-coloured rivets and a single cutting-edge blade measuring 17.5cm in length and 3.8cm at its maximum width. The handle was extensively bloodstained on both sides of the handle, as was the blade. There were hairs and fibres present on the knife and some of Sana's own hairs were found both in her right hand and on the floor where she was found lying. So what could this mean? Why would Sana have her own hair in her hand? The police and prosecution have never suggested that Sana had her own hair in her hand because it was planted by Mindy. So the police case is that Sana pulled her own hair out whilst being violently attacked by Mindy. But I would suggest that the answer to this is much more logical and straightforward and that it was Sana who was in such a state pulling her own hair out. Hence, why it is in her hand and very significantly on the knife. Is this not evidence that the knife had all the time been in Sana's hand? Let's hear more from Mr Woods into what the crime scene told him. There were numerous blood spots and splashes inside the room showing a sense of direction. These were concentrated in the confined area to the left of the bed, including the wall to where Sana was found and across the wardrobe doors in the far left corner of the room. There was a single horizontal linear cast of blood spots. To help you imagine the scene, why not pause here and go online to our website www.the-detective.co.uk 
and view the bedroom crime scene photographs. So let me describe the layout. At the top of the stairs, straight ahead of you, is the bedroom door, which opens inwards from right to left. Directly in front of you is the double bed, and to the left, at the top of the bed, a bedside cabinet. And Sana's body was behind the door, in front of the bed, but towards the wall on the left-hand side. Dr. Davidson's interpretation of the scene was as follows. Dr. Davidson said her findings are what she would have expected to see if Sana was involved in a struggle with her assailant, which resulted in her receiving defence injuries to her arms and hands while attempting to protect herself. She did say of note that there was only one clear linear cast-off distribution amongst a relatively limited amount of blood in the left corner of the room. And so what about the bed and blood staining on the throw? What did the experts make of this? The blood pattern expert for the defence, Mr Woods, stated that the general distribution of blood on the throw on the bed would support the suggestion that Sana was sat on the centre bottom of the bed and that she at one point placed a wet blood-stained hand on the edge of the bed, likely to have been her left hand. He also said that it was possible that having received a serious injury, Sana slumped backwards where blood has then run from the injury location onto the throw. He also commented that the general widespread distribution of the blood droplets, contact stains and smears suggested that there had been much movement on the bed. Mr Woods further interprets the blood on Sana's clothing, in particular her top and trousers. We have already heard from Dr Davidson in regard to some of this. Sana's top over the area of the abdominal injury had no cuts to it. His observations are that the overall distribution supports the suggestion that Sana bled liberally from her chest injuries onto her trouser leg whilst in a sitting forward position, after which she moved into a laying position in which she received the injury to her abdomen. It remains possible she received her abdominal injury while sitting or standing and immediately fell onto the floor. Let me make this point again now having heard Mr Wood's evidence. So given that Sana's top had no cuts to it, it must follow that either the killer or Sana herself held it up when the knife was plunged into her abdomen. Mr Wood says that at some stage Sana was sat on the end of the bed when the chest injury was caused. So was Sana sat on the edge of the end of the bed also when the abdominal injury was caused? She then fell from sitting on the edge of the bed, hit her head and ended up face down on the floor just away from the bed, still conscious and prior to being found, Sana then turned herself over, explaining why she was found face up. Mr Woods also states that there was much movement on the bed while Sana was bleeding. So was Mindy fighting with Sana on the bed? I'm sure at this stage you are wondering why, given the amount of blood in the bedroom and on Sana's clothing, was none transferred out of the bedroom nor onto any of Mindy's clothing or property. I wanted to know what explanation the police had for this. So I asked the officer in charge of the investigation, retired Detective Chief Superintendent Jane Antrobus. I think she wore gloves. Yes, I do. I think she wore gloves and I think she wore um, a suit similar to what uh, police officers and booties like a police officer would wear when they're going to crime scene. So like a full forensic yes. suit? That would be quite a task to take on, wouldn't it? To, to go and commit a crime and take 
uh, a suit. Do you, in your experience in investigating murders, which have been many, how many cases would you say where offenders have turned up at crime scenes and put on a full body suit and committed a crime? I would say it's the first one that I've come across, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen and it would account for the lack of um, blood transference outside the bedroom where the incident happened. So you've never dealt with another case where it is, and, and roughly how many murders have you dealt with over your career? Over, well over 100. Okay, so pretty minimum, in, well, tiny percentage in terms of that. So, but where would she have got that suit from? So was there anything found on her computer? I mean, I, I suspect even back then you may have been able to get them from the internet. Was there searches? Where would she have got this suit from? Well, you could obtain the suit from just going into a, a shop that sold medical supplies. And remember, she was a dentistry student and she was well aware of DNA. She had a book in a wardrobe, everything you want to know about DNA, in the bottom of the wardrobe, together with the copy of the Quran and the box of burnt candles that she was burning every day, um, hoping that her love would come back to her, based on a Bollywood film that she was found with. So, I mean, on the face of it, you've got this grade A dental student and then behind it you've got these other things going on in her mind and in conversations where she's saying I don't know I'm going to court with it, um, I'm turning into a psycho. So there's definitely the swan effect with Mindy and what everybody sees on the surface is not exactly what is going on inside Mindy. Did you find the suit? Did you find evidence of, of how or where she could have disposed of that? We didn't find the exact evidence, but we certainly tracked her in her vehicle back to the Birmingham Dental Hospital, um, driving round at the back to where the incinerators are. We didn't see her put it in because there was no camera on that, but she was there a matter of seconds and then drove off again. So the opportunity was there to dispose of and were those, by the time you got that information, were those incinerators, had they been in, in use? Yes. Okay. So had she put them in there, they would they have gone. They would have gone, yeah. So the police believe Mindy planned the whole attack and came with a full forensic suit and was either careful or lucky enough not to transfer any blood, of which there was a lot, out of the bedroom. At this stage, I will let you make up your own mind in regard to this hypothesis. So what of the knife? Who owned it? And why were there no forensics linking Mindy to the knife? Well, we didn't identify the exact knife, but we certainly had Mindy on CCTV um, in Solihull going into a shop that sells the same knife, which is a Tramontina kitchen knife. We have no actual um, CCTV of purchasing the knife or coming out with it and no exact evidence of how many knives were sold that particular day. The inference, and as I said, there's quite a lot of circumstantial evidence um, that back up the actual factual evidence, um, is that she purchased it that day. Right, but you've got nothing to say that she did purchase that knife. It could no. just as well be a knife that belonged to somebody in the house. Certainly home. didn't belong to anybody in the house. We've ruled that out. Um, they did not own a knife of that make. Right. So it was a knife that had been brought to the house by someone. 
But it could have been Sana's. In other words, Sana could have brought that into her house, her own, and nobody else seen the knife. She could have kept that knife in That's her own bedroom. That's a possibility. So, in terms of the knife, the knife is found right next to Sana. There is lots of blood on that knife and hair, but there are no fingerprints or anything on that knife in relation to Mindy. And no. your explanation to that would be because of... She wore surgical gloves. But then, Dr. Uh, Ackland says there is no evidence to support that rubber gloves were worn and the reason that he gives an explanation to that is that when they tested it, there was no talcum powder or any element of gloves would suggest those gloves had been worn. So that would then say, you've got an expert saying, well, there is no evidence to say that gloves were worn on those, that knife, bearing in mind all the blood splatter and all the blood that was on that knife. But the other thing about it, it was very covered, it was totally covered in blood. Mm. So whatever forensic evidence was there or wasn't there is not um, absolutely critical because of the blood seepage all over that knife. Okay. But you do, there is an expert who says that he, in his expert opinion, there is no evidence to support that the glove would be, was worn. In terms of the, there is a very interesting, uh, what I find strange is if Mindy's taken such effort to wear a forensic suit, why the hell would you leave a, life, a knife there which potentially could have traces of DNA or something on you? Why would you do that? Particularly if you've got a book about DNA, you run that risk. Because if you had gloves on and you had a mask on, you wouldn't be leaving any DNA on the knife. So, and staying with obviously your theory in terms of the suit, that would mean that she'd have to have taken the suit off at the point of the door or something like that. Um, is that your belief? Yes. Right, okay. But there are no, uh, there are no blooded um, footprints from anybody within that room. There is blood on Sana's feet, but there are no third-party blood footprints I would if that attack is as frenzied as suggested it seems strange there is no blood transfer to footprints well that is for the blood pattern analysis scientist to to discuss and obviously all that was discussed mm. in court Next week in episode four, we will consider what, if any, is the significance of the calls to Sana's mobile phone on that fateful afternoon. Because there's messages on the phone that were open and after, after Mindy had left, so the timing was um, crucial on them because we thought, obviously, if Mindy had left, somebody, somebody else had opened them messages. further examine Mindy's account with that of the police's case and trial evidence. Mindy says that she left via the back door about 2.15pm and that she was let out by Sana. She must have left by 2.21pm because she called her friend Sheetal from the car, a call that lasted just over 17 minutes. I find a very similar case that was originally dealt with as a murder before being ruled a suicide. We was involved in the round in 2007 about uh, a 40 years old physical therapist 
that was founded uh, in uh, his uh, home and uh, of course uh, uh, the first opinion uh, when we arrived that uh, it was a consequence of a homicide because uh, uh, he had a lot of uh, wounds on his uh, body and uh, he was uh, described uh, as uh, uh, he were alone he was alone when uh, after just a quarrel with uh, his uh, uh, girlfriend so anyway uh, he has 35 uh, Wounds uh, and uh, many uh, of these on the neck, uh, on the chest, and the abdomen, and uh, some of uh, uh, left wrist too. And the first opinion was that just on the crime scene that uh, it was an homicide. I challenge the investigating police officer. I do not believe this is a miscarriage of justice. I believe it was a properly conducted investigation and a properly absolute watertight conviction. But it because the person has no previous convictions and it's a complete out of character thing, then that gives the question mark to this poor innocent class A student has been framed by the police. And investigate other cases of similarity in the same force area. A 29 year old man who died from knife wounds in Manchester stabbed himself to death, police have said. After initially treating it as a murder, officers were called to Manchester Royal Infirmary after reports a man had died from multiple stab injuries. You've just heard episode three of What If It's Not Murder. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your true crime friends to listen and subscribe to our channel. If you have any thoughts or just want to get in touch, you can do so via our Twitter page at The Detective FM or go to our website www.the-detective.co.uk. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, produced and recorded by Mark Williams Thomas, edited by Martin Kays and the music by Dylan E. Pager. The Detective is an original true crime podcast brought to you by Acast.